HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Good afternoon and welcome. I'm bringing it to you straight, no chaser. This is your host, Katie Kiefer, and I'm broadcasting live from the back of Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, where brunch is being served. Um, Today, we have a really special guest. Um, His name is Chuck Jolly, and he is the principal in uh, Jolly and Associates. He's also the president of the American Meat Hall of Fame, and he is an industry insider for many, many years, and we'll get to the bottom of that. And the reason Chuck is joining me today is that the papers have lately been full of the fact that McDonald's, Taco Bell, and Burger King have all agreed that they will no longer use a product which is affectionately known as pink slime. Pink slime is something that probably many people have seen in that really disgusting photo where it looks like sort of raspberry frozen yogurt. It's this extruded pink product uh, on a large dish, and it's made from um, cattle trim. There's nothing wrong with pink slime. This very smart guy named Eldon Roth, who runs uh, the company Beef Products Incorporated, figured out how to basically wring the very last few cents of profit out of uh, carcass trimmings and more power to him for doing it. And the other uh, great thing about pink slime, um, if you want to call it great, is that it, because of the way it is processed, it also has the effect of decontaminating ground meat. And it was basically created in response to the big E. coli outbreak in the 90s um, with Jack in the Box, uh, another big uh, fast food chain. So Chuck, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining me today. I'm really excited about this. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you for asking. You know, it's very rare that uh, somebody of your caliber, I should say, I mean, who has the experience that you have in the cattle industry, who really knows the industry inside and out, and um, and is also does public relations for the industry, is you know gets a chance to air your point of view in um, the media, especially you know left wing alternative types like us. So I'm I'm really happy you agreed to join us today because a lot of people are scared by that, um, but I'm also uh, of course um, excited to be able to have the president of the Meat Industry Hall of Fame here. I hadn't realized before I read your bio that you carried that mantle of greatness. Um, I, you, you have to tell me right now, before we start getting into the nitty-gritty, exactly what is the American Meat Hall of Fame and how come you get to be president? 
actually the, the the proper name is Meat Industry Hall of Fame. Oh, sorry. Um, it's it's about a four year old organization. Uh, I put it together with some some friends in the industry about four years ago. Ah. When we looked around and decided there were a lot of, of people in the meat industry uh, that did two things very well. Uh, you know, they, they captained their industry, of course, and, and, and made them successful. And at the same time, you know, they were very good citizens. They, they, they gave back uh, and, and, you know, kind of enhanced, I think, their, their reputation as, as people. And we said, we, we need to recognize those people and honor them for the work that they've done and so yeah so that's how that came about well third third year of of recognizing people now excellent excellent um i hope you'll be inducting me into the uh american the meat industry hall of fame as well um and i'm sure you will after this interview now let's (laughs) (laughs) let's get right down to business my friend first of all i want you to describe for my listeners what is pink slime and why is it you know why is it used did i get that right in the beginning in my intro um, mostly, mostly. I, I, I think a lot of people in the industry kind of object to the pink slime uh, moniker. It's betcha. pink. It's not slimy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's meat. Uh, and and what happened there? Um, if I can give you a, a, a quick chemistry lesson in meat, please do. Uh, when, when meat's deboned uh, and, and turned into boneless steaks and, and roasts and cuts like that, there's always a little trim left over, and there was never a good use for that uh, for that trim. Uh, it was mostly lost, um, sold at a loss to you know pet food kinds of things, and and then Eldon Roth decided. Well, if we can make this very clean, you know, almost perfectly sanitary, uh, you know, it's it's a good product, uh, you know, to, to use for for ground beef, especially on a, on a price basis. So he figured out how to do that, and basically, what he does is surface coat the meat. It's not injected, which a lot of people um, are, are claiming. Um, it's it's just kind of sprayed with ammonium hydroxide. Not the kind of ammonia that you use at, at home, you know. And and I think that uh, that video, that news piece that uh, ran a few years ago, where a news reporter was was basically pouring a jar of of household ammonia over slabs of meat and saying, "Hey, this is how it's done," was just so far off the mark that. You know, it was a great visual, but it had absolutely nothing to do with the process itself. Mm-hmm. And what, what he gets then is is a product that's almost, and, and will never reach that perfect point, but almost perfectly clean. No, no bacteria, no, no deathly pieces and parts on that thing. And, and you know, it's, it's used to help control the cost of, of, of ground beef. Well, isn't it primarily used? Uh, okay, first of all, let's let's clarify that it's used as an additive to other ground beef. In other words, this product it looked to me in the photographs um, that I looked at, it's 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 kind of a um, almost a yogurty or or uh, you know it's 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 a homogenized product, right? And yeah, then it's it's yeah, added yeah. into what's more recognizable as ground beef, the way consumers are used to seeing it in supermarket packaging, correct? Correct, correct. And it's used yes. um, not only because it, it adds volume to ground beef, but also because it's the, the fact that it's been treated with ammonium hydroxide also helps it to clean up the ground beef that has not gone through that process. Am I right in that? Oh, no, no, no. Not no, there. not at all? Um, it, 
when it's used as part, you know, as, as part of a ground beef product, where you're you're bringing in a lot of other, uh, you know, trim and, and maybe whole muscle meats, it won't clean that up. Oh, okay. What what you're putting into the product is something that's probably significantly uh, cleaner than than the product itself. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what I'm thinking. Okay. I'm just, I'm quoting the New York Times article that I read because of course in 2009, um, as I know, you know, uh, there was a big expose about this very product and about beef product. It's beef product international. Is that the name of the company? BPI? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and that's Eldon Roth's product. And now the thing that, um, the thing that, that's, that struck me about this and uh, I'm going to like jump a little bit ahead and then we're going to backtrack a bit to the way the media explodes, you know, explodes these stories and then doesn't really give you guys a chance to respond. But we're going to right now we're going to stay on pink slime. Um, The thing that struck me about this was that if the industry had been more transparent about what they were using this for, do you think that people would have been um, more receptive to it? Or do you think that it would still have gotten the same bad rap? Would you blame Jamie Oliver, for example, as I know many in the beef industry do, uh, for, you know, bringing about this, um, this change in policy on the part of fast food chains? Oh, I think Jamie Oliver was probably the biggest single culprit in this. Um, you know his his television program. Uh, what, what really I think the term pink slime, you know, really took off. Uh, he was talking from almost complete ignorance about the about the process and and the product. Uh, it, it made for good television, but it had no scientific basis whatsoever. So, so in other words, I mean, when he showed, was he the one who was pouring ammonia over beef and then saying that's what you're eating? I mean, Isn't ammonium I know, hydroxide? I don't, I don't really remember. I know there was uh, there was a, uh, a television program, a news program, mm-hmm. about a year, year and a half ago, where that was done. I didn't see Jamie Oliver's piece. I just read the the copy after it was done. Right. I didn't see it either, so I can't comment on it, except for the fact that I've seen it mentioned many times since then in the coverage about um, the policy change in the fast food chains. Now, wh- is this? Let me ask you this. I mean, what are they going to use instead of that? Like, I, I know this was in my second, supposedly in my second segment, but I think let's get to the crux <laughs> of it. What is this a case of be careful what you wish for? What will the industry substitute instead of this? Because, in fact, it has been quite an effective intervention in food in preventing foodborne illness. Would you concur with that? Well, mostly, uh, but like like I said earlier, it it doesn't cure the downstream problem. Uh, you know what you're using when when you use the product is a product that's that's um, you know almost perfectly clean. Um, it was mostly used, I, I think, as a cost control method. Um, as, as you know, most people buy ground beef based on on cost on on the price and the and the, the meat cases. Same thing with. Uh, with hamburgers at, at fast food joints. Um, the industry is known for, for years that the most price-sensitive product in the meat case is ground beef. You know, plus or minus a couple of pennies can, you know, really turn turn that particular market around in a, in a hurry. Um, most of his product, by the way, I've got to add this, it doesn't uh, show up in product at the supermarket level. It, that was going to be my next question. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Most mostly used uh, for you know the production of of hamburger patties used at fast food joints like McDonald's. 
And for a long time, it was used in school lunch programs, was it not? Yeah, that's another extremely price-sensitive area. Uh, you know, school lunches are are bought almost exclusively on price bids. And, you know, if, if, if you want to supply a, a meat product or, you know, a pizza product or, or whatever, uh, you know, the, the first thing people who buy school lunch products look at is, is the price. So... Absolutely. Um, We're going to take a 30-second break and have a little sponsor drop. Stay on the line with us, Chuck, and we'll be right back for more about uh, BPI. The following program has been brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery. Cane Vineyard and Winery supports Heritage Radio and the growing movement to change how Americans eat and how we think about our planet. For more information, visit www.cane5.com. And this is Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it is my great pleasure to uh, enjoy the company of Chuck Jolly, the principal for Jolly & Associates. Um, Chuck is an industry insider and expert on the cattle industry based out in Kansas City, right, Chuck? Right. Yeah. Thanks a lot for joining us. I really appreciate it. So um, back to the subject of BPI, otherwise known as Beef Product international or beef product we're talking about beef product which is uh, has been vilified in the in the press and and chuck is here to um set us straight about some of the possible misperceptions that people have about this so we were talking about whether or not this product is going to be substituted um with another product which may be potentially less consumer friendly but so do you think that that will happen do you think that in order to or is the price of the whopper going to go up uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I know the price of, of hamburgers at, at fast food. Uh, you know, they're so price sensitive that, that you know, Burger King and McDonald's, they're very hesitant to, to pass any any increases in price. You know, along and yet, and yet cattle up, prices are very really minor. High. Uh, you know, cost of production, cost of, of processing. Maybe, maybe the hamburger patty will cost another quarter of a cent. They'll probably McDonald's probably just go ahead and and eat that price increase rather than adding an extra penny or two to the to the price at, at retail. So. Well, the cattle industry isn't aren't beef prices at pretty much an all time high right now anyway because of the drought and the corn prices, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah, the, the the drought has has really decimated the the Southwest, which is one of the major cattle producing industries. Um, export business has skyrocketed in the, in the, in the past few years. Uh, the price of corn has doubled, maybe tripled in some cases. So, yeah, yeah, the prices are at an all time high. Um, can I ask why um, ammonia was the the product of choice in creating, um, you know, in cleaning up this? I mean, aren't there other interventions for um, for eliminating pathogens such as E. coli and salmonella? What you know? What about, uh, for instance, I've just been reading about electrocuting meat, basically, um, as one form of intervention. And of course, there's irradiation, which consumers have resisted, but which the industry has long espoused. Um, what's what's wrong with things like that? Well, first, let me let me correct something. It's it's not ammonia that's used. It's ammonium hydroxide. But isn't that just ammonia um, mixed with water? It's, it's a related product, of course, but but it's not ammonia, um, and and it's not an intrinsic part of the product when it's over. You know, 
only very minute amounts, almost untraceable amounts, are, are left in the product itself. But, so. but Chuck, in that New York Times article, it said that the um, that the product, like a uh, prison system, uh, you know, they thought in Georgia there was so much ammonia in the, you know, it smelled so strongly they thought that it had been contaminated by accident, and they <laughs> reported it to the USDA. I mean, haven't I know that the levels have fluctuated to account for, um, you know, for taste problems? But but doesn't it become part of the product when it goes? I know it's it's a gas that's piped onto it as it passes through these pipes mm-hmm. in the production process? In other words, they shoot this ammonium hydroxide gas over it, which is just water and ammonia mixed together. Yeah, Not household yeah. ammonia, and, but, you know, whatever it, ammonia it, that they use. And also, let and me it, say that, that beef has ammonia in it, and we have ammonia in our own bodies. So obviously it's not poison. At least in obviously not. You know, it's it's in plants. It's in us. It's in meat. Uh, you know, if, if meat is held under incorrect conditions it will develop an ammonia-like odor all by itself isn't that the truth um yeah yeah i mean i'm, I'm <laughs> sure people have you know, maybe opened up a, a vacuum bag of meat uh, oh, yeah. that had gone a little too long and oh you got to clear the house out <laughs> hey i was a butcher man i was a butcher for five years chuck that's why i'm so interested in the meat industry Ah, okay, so you you, you know, you know. I, I'm um, a little, yeah, I'm not a complete neophyte when it comes to this stuff. Um, <clears throat> do you think that because they have uh, taken this product out of the market that we will see an uptick, uptick in cases of foodborne illness from fast food consumption? I don't think so. Uh, you know, fast food, especially after, you know, Jack in the Box in the mid-90s, They've instituted so many controls. Uh, you know, the, the the real deal here is undercooking the product. Is and that now okay, Chuck? We're going to have a little moment here because I, you know, I read MeetingPlace.com all the time. I, of course, that's how I know all about you because I read your copy a lot, um, and I read Food Safety News and everything. And you know, blaming the consumer is a really easy cop out for the industry, in my opinion. So. You know, I mean, there are so many ways in which these pathogens can be spread around. Um, is it really fair to say that if the meat was just cooked properly, then this would never happen? Is that really an accurate and fair statement, do you think? 99.999% of the time, yeah, it's it's fair. If the meat is cooked to an adequate temperature, the pathogens will be dead. They, they, they won't be effective whatsoever. Um uh, you know, the big question is, should the pathogens be there in the first place? Yes. Is, it the, is it the consumer's responsibility to make sure that that, that ground meat is cooked to the proper temperature? That I mean, is you know, the question. That will never happen. Uh, <laughs> you know, we can do a lot to educate the consumer on, on the proper temperature, but it just doesn't happen. So, you know, that, that's, that's probably a debate for another time. Who's really at fault in, mm-hmm. in a case like that? You know, so... Well, I mean, can I ask you this? When you make a hamburger at home or on the grill out in the summertime, do you cook it to 180 degrees until it's totally gray all the way through? Oh, I don't cook it to 180. I cook it to about 150, 160. Right. So it's not, yeah. it's, is that considered well done? I, 120 is rare. Like when I make, when I cook a filet mignon or something like that, and I stick a meat thermometer in, 120 is exactly the point where it is perfectly rare and absolutely wonderful. And that's kind of how I like my burgers. But I've, I've read it, I've read, uh, you know, I've read industry blogs saying, well, it should be cooked up to 180 or 185 degrees. And I don't think anybody wants to eat it then. So is that no, realistic? it's, it's- gets to be a little bit too dry and a little bit too it's just not a good eating so you think that 150 is enough to kill all your pathogens i think so Mm -hmm. yeah okay 
Well, we'll, we'll, we'll I'll look into that. Um, okay. Because <laughs> you'll be back, right, Jock? Oh, sure. sure. That's excellent. Okay. So let's talk for a second about irradiation. Now, irradiation is um, a method in which food is subjected to radioactive rays of some sort. Um, And there's, I think, been quite a bit of experimentation. It's a technology that's been around for at least 15 years, right? And is it because the consumer is scared to death of the whole concept of radiation? Or is it because it doesn't really um, do what it needs to do with ground beef, that it has not been widely adopted by the industry? Oh, it 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 does what it needs to do. I've, I've got uh, a, a vacuum-packaged meat patty uh, in my pantry that's 25 years old. It was originally created, <laughs> you know, for astronaut use. Um, I wouldn't have any problem at all opening that thing up, cooking it, and eating it today. Um, it works. Uh-oh, Chuck, um, be careful of what you say. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, I'm going to make you do a taste test. filming that right now. So, <laughs> yeah, right. no, I, it, it, works uh it 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 is a huge lethality step they call it uh you know when it comes to getting rid of of, of pathogens uh, two major problems with it though the, the first you've already mentioned which is you know the the consumer's fear of it i mean you know they i think some people have nightmares of you know glow in the dark meat and you know eating radiated food that'll cause their tummies to fall out tomorrow afternoon i think things that are crazy like that the other problem is where do you do it and there's only a couple of facilities in the country that that can do it and basically then what you're talking about is you know grinding the meat in omaha shipping it to sioux city to be irradiated then maybe shipping it back to omaha to be you know further distributed and, right. you know it's 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 a long very expensive process at this point but yeah it absolutely works and even with ground beef where because i know that it works on surface on carcass surfaces but with ground beef i thought there was some question about how far the rays would actually penetrate and whether or not if there were pathogens deep inside a chub or whatever they however they choose to you know sort of form the meat um that's not a concern yeah that is but it depends on on what you know, radiation systems you're you're using. Uh, electron beam radiation is is a surface treatment. You know, it it it'll go just just a very minute way into it. Um, if if you're using radiation, um, a whole different thing. That'll that'll penetrate the product and 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 work that way. But so what? Um, but most people use electronic. Uh, beam irradiation. You know, that, that stuff's been used on things like baby diapers. And spices. I know that all spices are irradiated to this day and have been for many years. For many, many years, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Unfortunately, medical we have to take... So. Yeah, exactly. Well, medical devices, yeah. But that's not stuff we consume or put in our bodies. I mean, we get x-rays and nobody loves that, but that's just part of, you know, part of being human. Um, we're going to take one more 30-second sponsor drop break, and then we're going to come back. We're going to talk a little bit more about this, and then I want to just get your take on subtherapeutic antibiotic use in the livestock industry. Thanks, Chuck.
Okay, I lied. We didn't have to do another sponsor drop. But anyway, <laughs> welcome back to Straight No Chaser on the Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is Chuck Jolly, who is the principal of Jolly & Associates, a public relations firm that specializes in the commodity meat in- or com- commodity cattle industry in the United States and is also a longtime uh, insider and expert on the industry. Chuck, thanks again for joining me today. So we were talking about... Um, BP Beef Product International, which is the maker of a, of a filler, an ammonium hydroxide treated filler for um, commercial beef patties that up until now were used extensively in the fast food industry. And um, now that they're not going to use that, um, let's just quickly go back to what, what are they going to use instead? Are we going to see like sawdust? Uh, are we going to see um, cereal fillers? I mean... What's their? What's the plan for taking the place of this? Because it does represent. Uh, I mean, uh, Mr. Roth's uh, uh, business generates some four hundred and forty million dollars a year, or it did until this happened. True, true. Uh, the, the the industry um, a long time ago, um, back when um, you know Jack in the Box first happened, they realized then that one step wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. They needed several several steps uh, to make sure the product was as safe as possible, and that's one thing Dave Thino kept preaching when he was, you know, helping to turn around the the, the problem at Jack in the Box. Uh, one step will solve ninety nine percent of your problem. You still have one percent left, so you need another step that will take care of ninety nine percent of that product, and 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 on and on. So most most places have you know two, three, four, even five lethality steps before the product ever goes out the door. So, you know, there there isn't, uh, I think, a huge need to replace that that one product at this point. Uh, The industry can do it very nicely without it. Uh, They just have to keep testing and and, and checking their product and making sure it's as clean as possible. Test and hold. Test and hold. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I read my blogs. Okay, now, so, Chuck, let me ask you, um, since you brought up those other interventions, and then we have to quickly go on to our our special um, little subtopic of subtherapeutic... Livestock, uh, subtherapeutic antibiotics and livestock. Um, what are those other products? Do they also include chemicals like ammonia? Should people be scared? Oh uh, no, no, no. Um, you know, one of the steps is spraying the, the carcasses with uh, citric acid, kind of a solution. I've seen kind vinegar. A, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and you know, they're making sure the product as as it starts the process is is as clean as possible. Much much more effective step right there than, than they've had in the past, and they'll, they'll spray it with, with a citric acid kind of a thing. Uh, they, they use UV lights. Uh, you know, there's I went to that Cargill plant. at least a half a dozen options out there that, yeah. that companies can, can look at and, and mix and match depending on, you know, their system and, and their product. So Right, right. So. Um, well, let's move on because um, you're going to come back and we're going to talk about this again, I can tell. Um, let's talk just quickly because I've been trying to get Louise Slaughter, who's the congresswoman who has been um, most outspoken uh, in the government about restricting uh, antibiotics that are commonly used to treat human ailments, um, but which about 90% of which supply goes into the livestock industry. And um, obviously it's used uh, to promote growth, but also to reduce um, illness in herd populations that are in confined area, um, you know, settings. So if the feedlot, do you think that the concern around the use of subtherapeutic antibiotics is, um, is justified? And if so, how is the cattle industry responding to that? 
Boy, that's a good question. Um, the, the vast majority of, of antibiotics used in feedlots uh, are not the same products that, that are used on humans. Uh, so there's kind of a, a, a miscommunication there, I guess. Uh, does it create problems downstream? I've, I've seen research that proves that it does, and I've seen re- research that says it has almost no effect. Uh, I think we're really too early in the research part of, of this whole controversy to, to make a definitive statement. But, but at this point, my gut reaction is they might be using a little bit too much, but not nearly to the point uh, you know that, that Miss Slaughter keeps talking about. I'd love to talk to her too. I can't get her on the phone, but yeah, I can't get her press person to respond to me either. Maybe together, you and I can do it um, if we both start hammering her about this, and you can be part of the program. That would be really cool. I would love that. Um, yeah. You know, but the thing is, though, Chuck, I have to ask you, like in the poultry industry, certainly, um, you know, Salmonella Heidelberg, uh, Salmonella Newport. I mean, all of these new Salmonella strains are definitely uh, resistant to antibiotics and they have withdrawn the cephalosporin class of antibiotics from uh, livestock feed. And that would indicate that there is a definite connection. So that may not be what they use in the cattle industry, but um, it does seem fairly conclusive to me um, as a layman that, you know, that there is really widespread concern that these that at least that class of drugs, which is very widely used in human um, treatment, um, has has had an impact on the evolution of some of these salmonella strains. And that you don't think that those those same concerns hold true for um, for the cattle industry? They don't I, use the no, same I don't. Kinds? I don't think so. And and you know, at, at the same time, I could recite the the, the Danish experiment. Uh, you know, eight or ten years ago, in their hog industry, they started pulling um, you know subtherapeutic yeah. products out uh, because they thought there were there, there was a continuing problem. Now, after you know, I don't know, six or seven years of, of research and, and watching it, there's been almost no effect. So. You know, were they looking in the wrong place? Uh, was their research before and after adequate? I, I don't know. There, there needs to be more research, and there needs to be repeatable research. I think a lot of these situations happen when, you know, one basic piece of research is done that proves one thing, but then you have to take that, as you know, elsewhere, and, and, and it has to be repeatable, and it has to have similar, you know, results before you can say, yeah, that's, that's definitely the, the, the cause and effect there. I don't think we're there yet. Okay, I'll accept that as an answer. Um, unfortunately, I only have time for one more question. But um, given the way that we raise uh, cattle now, primarily in the feedlot setting, do you see, and and should it be true that antibiotic use uh, does have some impact on human health, do you see any other viable method for raising cattle at the volume that we produce it now um, that would not include crowding the cattle together in small spaces where they are easily able, although they love to herd together. I don't know why people get so upset about that. They do love to stand all close together anyway. It's not like you see them, um, you know, spaced out with 100 feet apart, right? Correct. They're, they're, they're herd animals. <laughs> yeah. they, they, they love to join up and, and socialize, I guess. But, yes, they yeah, do socialize. Uh, you know, expecting you know to to go to grass-fed cattle, uh, we don't have enough land to do that at, at the volumes that, that we have now with with good grass on it. You you put uh, 
100 head of cattle on 100 acres of, of, of grass, and, you know, the next day, all 100 of them were going to be within 100 feet of each other. They, they flock together. There's, there's no way around that. So, no, I, you know, you, you have to treat sick animals. There's no way around oh, and, sure. and animals get sick, you know, whether they're grass-fed or whether they're in feedlots. And, and, you know, we have to develop a way to, to do that, you know, humanely and quickly. Uh, that's the real crux of, of the situation here. Um, you know, you, you could you could take all those antibiotics away tomorrow, uh, and then you'd have a huge animal welfare problem day after tomorrow. You, we, we can't do that. We, we have to take care of our of our cattle and our chickens and our turkeys. And so our do hogs. you think the feedlot method uh, contributes to a higher incidence of disease in cattle? I don't think so. No, uh, it could, but you know, like I said, they're, they're herd animals mm-hmm. to start with. So if you have a sick animal, uh, whether it's in a feedlot or, you or know, out on your in pasture. an open pasture, right. you're going to take it out disease. and you're going to so. feed it. You're going to treat it, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time, my friend. But, Chuck, you have been such a good sport. Now, this wasn't so bad, was it? Oh, I was. I enjoyed it. It was fun. Thank you for thank you for asking. Well, I hope you'll come back. It's been a real pleasure, and it's great to have somebody, you know, from the other side who really does know the business well. And um, and you know, we may not agree on everything, but uh, we probably agree on more than um, most people would think. So, um, Chuck Jolly, thanks for being on the show. Next week, my guest will be Michael Conard and his um, his colleagues from MIT and Columbia will be discussing distribution systems for food in the United States. They've just concluded a massive uh, paper, which they will be delivering to um, the USDA and others. Um, so please stay tuned for next week's show with Michael Conard from Columbia University. I'm Katie Kiefer, your host on Straight No Chaser. We'll be back next week. Thanks to my sponsor and thank you to Jack Inslee, my producer and friend. So long, folks. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.